Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, New Books listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the New Books Network. This is the channel in language, and I'm your host, Lee Pierce, Assistant Professor of Rhetoric at SUNY Geneseo. And I'm really excited today to be joined by Heather, Suzanne Woods, and Leslie A. Honor with their new book, Make America Meme Again, The Rhetoric of the Alt-Right, published by Peter Lang. This book is fascinating on two fronts. First of all, it looks at memes as a form of public discourse or rhetorical communication. So for those of you that don't know about memes, uh, picture like an image, and it's the same image that just keeps getting made over and over and over again and attached to different you know, captions or quotes. And so it's the same structurally, it has a lot of the same components, but it moves to create different meaning in different contexts. And of course, if I had a camera, I would show you images of memes, but you can also just Google memes on the internet and that will solve that problem. And so it looks um, at memes as a form of rhetorical discourse as something that circulates in public culture to affect opinion and persuade. But it also specifically looks at the rise of memes during the Uh, Trump's early part of Trump's campaign, especially among the alt-right, which is the the wing of the conservative political right that is especially like racist nationalists. So what we think of as sort of like American Nazis, for those of you that haven't heard that term. And I mean, it makes a very compelling case that memes were one of, if not the, then certainly one of the most important, um, I would say of all communication factors, but definitely of digital communication factors in securing Trump's you know, you can't, as they say in the book, you can't prove that Trump was elected through memes, but they make a very compelling case that without the memes, we might have been looking at a very different election, let's put it that way. And especially the role that memes play in recruiting people who might be otherwise sort of um, moderate or maybe right leaning, but the way that memes are kind of the gateway to bringing them into extremist right culture and political opinion. So I will leave it at that because I'm sure that Leslie and Heather have much more to say. So with that, Leslie, do you want to um, say hi? And then Heather, maybe you could follow up. Hi, this is Leslie. Sounds good. Great. And Leslie, do you want to introduce yourself? I'm so sorry. Yes. Hi. Uh, I'm Leslie. (laughs) I am an associate professor at Baylor University and the co-author of Make America Meme Again. Yes. And for those of you um, that don't know, Leslie was also on, and now I'm going to blank on the title of the book. Leslie, you were on, you did an interview a couple of maybe months ago, the uh, to become an American. Become I was going to say how to become an American. To become an American. Yes. So for those of you, after you finish this interview, you can um, scoot over and check out Leslie's other interview. And then Heather, do you want to say hello as well? Yeah. Hello, everybody. My name is Heather Woods. I am an assistant professor of digital rhetoric at Kansas State University in the Department of Communication Studies. And I'm super excited to chat with y'all. This was a really fabulous book. So um, as always, people at home, we're going to talk about the book as if, well, actually, you're probably in your car. So people in your car, um, we're going to talk about the book as if you haven't read it, but there's, we're just going to only start even covering the surface of all of the depth. And the research on this is just incredible. 
I, I couldn't believe how much research you managed to pack. And, and I know that like memes are obviously have an endless source of research, but even so, this is still an impressively researched book. All right. So does anybody want to add on to what I said about the summary or general overview of the book or any kind of context or background for the project that you think would help orient listeners to, to, the, to the book? I can say a little something. Um, this is in, in the introduction Great. to the book, um, I think, where we talk about where the book came from. Um, and we get a lot of questions about this when we um, do interviews or we go on the road. People are like, why did you choose to write a book about memes? And in particular, these memes. And it started really organically having a conversation frequently in mimetic format between Leslie and me. And me. Um, and we were trying to decide what made memes so rhetorically powerful to so many different people and um, how they shape-shifted over a period of time to include politics and some really complex statements about politics while seeming, I don't know, pithy, ineffectual. Um, Some people have called them stupid, right? And so how are these what Lauren Berlant calls silly artifacts or silly objects, so powerful as to influence an American politic, the way that we communicate about politics in the Republic. And so we started to sort of dig deep and we said, there's a book. We have to do um, do some work to show the relevance of memes um, and how they can communicate so powerfully. Leslie, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I think there's this clear moment when both of us are like having these ongoing conversations about research. Um, And what happened was, is we had been hanging out in 4chan and sort of looking at all of these memes. And then... Leslie, will you pause for just a second? So just because we're getting into some vocab. So first of all, when when Heather says that they were having a mimetic conversation, do you essentially mean you were generating these memes and then sending them back and forth to each other? We were finding memes that we thought were really interesting on 4chan, which is an image where people talk about lots of different topics. But the way that people talk on this image board is largely through meme format. So they'll share a meme and they'll have like a comment that they'll make with that meme. But for the most part, 4chan is both the birthplace of what most people know as internet memes, which is a still image with impact font laid over the top. And it's also a place where meme invention changes rapidly. So you can find really creative, fascinating memes, and then you can also find memes that are also creative, but less fascinating and more dangerous in terms of how they persuade or how they address an audience. So what happened was I was we were hanging out in some of these 4chan image boards that are particular to what we would call an American neo-Nazi, trying to understand what they were doing, how they were conceptualizing the audience, how they were talking to that audience. And we found these memes that we were sharing back and forth. And then four days later, I was reading, I live in Waco, Texas, and I was reading a newspaper article. And I noticed people in the comment section of a newspaper article on immigration using memes as a comment and using memes that I had seen just posted four days earlier on an image board on 4chan. And so 
that fast circulation and this ongoing conversation that Heather and I had been having became this moment where we were like, oh my gosh, not only do we have to write this book, but we have to go quickly and make this argument because people need to know what's happening. I mean, certainly the timing of the book and the interview couldn't be better because, I mean, and, and I'm not, I'm relatively hip to this game, but I wasn't as hip as I was until I read the book. And and really, I think, especially in terms of the way that the alt-right memes have, have actively been suppressing sort of a similar kind of mimetic discourse on the left, and then also the way that they sort of recruit for the extremist alt-right were both things that I, that were kind of like circulating in the back of my mind, but I didn't really have the grasp until I read the book. So I, I agree. I mean, I'm glad that you, well, you're, you're also both brilliant people, but I'm not surprised you could get a book out this fast, but I'm glad that you put it as a priority because I think it's um, incredibly valuable reading. So do, do you want to take it um, in any particular direction in terms of where to go from here? Or do you want a suggestion? I'll let Heather say. Heather, what do you think? What's your favorite part of the book? I like all parts of the book. That's probably, <laughs> that's probably the, the easy way out. Um, I, I have been teaching memes as a form of communication, as a form of digital rhetoric for some time now. And something that my students uh, frequently remark upon is the speed at which memes shift and change. And so when we were writing the book, we, we were very, um, I wouldn't say concerned, but like thoughtful about the fact that the memes that were captured in a particular way in the book would likely change. And so we wanted to provide an infrastructure or a theoretical scaffolding to analyze memes that were not reliant upon a particular meme template. And to explain that, memes are unique artifacts, um, digital forms of rhetoric, in part because of the speed at which they circulate. They are invitational. Um, they tend to have... Um, multiple iterations to them. There tends to be a format or fixed standard against which persons can create or recreate memes. And that means that they're um, an inherently uh, sort of poetic, not like poetry, but like autopoetic in a Warnerian sense in that they recreate over time. And so we were very mindful of creating a book that wouldn't just focus on, for instance, the Pepe meme, although we do spend a full chapter on that because we find it to be of great significance. But we also try to provide bits and pieces throughout the book that create um, uh, a way to unpack memes as they continue to shift throughout time. So my students bring to me memes examples as we analyze them in class. And some of them are like, Old school memes, you know, if you can think of um, the genesis of what we now call a meme, like an image, <clears throat> excuse me, a, a cute image with impact font over the top that says something funny, or they'll now bring me like the technical term is shit posting memes, these nonsensical, ironic memes that just have iterative value for the people who understand their language. And so I'm so interested to see how memes move 
beyond the point at which we capture them. Leslie, do you have anything to add to that? Yes, I think what's most fascinating in both of us, so since writing the book, I've started teaching a memes class functionally. I'm teaching the concepts of the book. And it's fascinating to me to think about memes as this process of rhetorical invention that is speaking to this particular cultural moment and that moves very quickly after that. And because they move quickly and seem so pithy or silly, as Heather put it earlier, I don't think a lot of folks take them seriously as forms of persuasion. And they are very serious as forms of persuasion. And so one of the things that we talk about in the book is that these memes have different tactics. And each chapter is an attempt to capture the rhetorical tactic at stake, whether that's directing public attention or punctuating the flow of public discourse or antagonizing the left or leaning into irony. These are different tactics that are not dependent on the specific content of the meme always, though the content is still important, but rather show how these digital images move and may shape us as a people and as a republic uh, in a lot of different ways. Awesome. So I heard a couple of things in there. Um, inclu- so first of all, we should talk about, and I think the book does a good job of tracking a theory of, if we want to call it like a theory of mimetic, ef- like rhetorical effectivity generally, so that if someone wanted to study other memes or even memes on the left or, you know, whatever. I can see the millions of future directions that every graduate student on earth is going to absolutely just love from this book. They could do that using the book. And then also it specifically looks at memes that have circulated most frequently in this alt-right network that you're, that the book is kind of, is the book's case study. And so you mentioned the the Pepe meme. and I, But before we get to the Pepe meme, I actually had a question that I, I thought was interesting. So this idea of remediation and how new media tends to sort of repackage old media. I was kind of expecting, and I'm fine, You, did, I'm not, this is not a criticism. This is just like, I would have expected that there would, and I guess maybe part of it is I'm thinking about Leslie's other book, which is more of a rhetorical history. I, there was a really good stuff about the history of 4chan and Reddit and the way that these are kind of unique points in the the meme ecosystem. But what what was a meme before it was a meme? Do you, do you know what I mean by that? Like this idea of memes must have always been around. And so we must have been using them at some other point. But I can't think of before 2000 and whatever, when memes were a thing, like what what did the work of memes before then? Have you have you thought about that question? Those things would have been I mean, if you were going in the mid 20th century, would we would have seen those as pastiche or we would have seen those as cultural culture jamming or something like that. But I anchor it in the class that I'm teaching to World War One propaganda okay. because it's focused on fear appeals and different forms of propaganda. Because even those World War One posters are taking imagery that would have already been resonant and then overlaying different ideas on top of them and then recycling them. So that same tactic continues throughout the 20th century, but you see it move to the art world or you see it move to different areas of like advertising or um, pranking. And then the natural evolution of that once we get to digital culture is the meme. 
So I'm just thinking about somebody listening to this interview who's like, I just can't, and they can't see what we can see on the page, right? So this idea of certain like iconic symbols, like the Statue of Liberty, or I think of that flag raising in Iwo Jima, that just keep getting, they show up in like all state, like there's a no caption needed, which is a, a really famous book in our field, um, talks about how this Iwo Jima flag gets put to work in like all state commercials and all of these other contexts, because it keeps circulating sort of not the same message, but Every time it recirculates, it resonates with its original meaning, but then it gets put into kind of new effects. So that's that's helpful because I'm just thinking of someone listening to this at home who has just no idea what a meme is. And then do we want to talk specifically then about the Pepe meme since since Heather already brought it up and it is the first chapter? And I think it's a – I mean, for most of us, like this is the meme that defines the all right. Yeah, that sounds good to me. I want to also suggest that if people are – interested in a more, um, I don't know, I don't want to say like a robust treatment of memes, because I would argue that we have a robust treatment, but one that talks about the historical um, development of the meme or some uh, basic principles of it. There's a really great book by Schiffman that we consulted. um, And there's also um, a bunch of really great books uh, by, or at least two books that I'm thinking of by Ryan Milner um, that are great on the meme uh, definition. Yeah. And this is an incredibly robust exploration. It's just for somebody who is tech phobic. I worry that all of this casual internet slang, by the way, I didn't know about LULZ, L-U-L-Z. Okay. That chapter blew my mind. I was like, oh man, internet technology I don't, or internet terminology. I don't know about this book is way too hip for me. Well, like- but I am, but yeah, just never heard of it. Let's start with Pepe and then I'm going to let Heather talk about lulls. All right, cool. All right, so for those of you who don't know, Pepe the Frog was the most popular internet meme for over a decade before it became used in, uh, for the purposes of electing Trump. So just some backstory, Pepe the Frog um, was a comic character so it's an anthropomorphized frog so it's like the head of a frog and the body of a frog but it he kind of looks like a college bro at least that's how he's depicted in this comic that was created by matt fury and in the comic pepe just doesn't give a damn about anything and that's sort of his mo he very much is irreverent he is the hero of underdogs and that became the way that he was considered in digital cultural spaces and by the time we get to like 2005 katie you know like we're seeing celebrities i'm sorry i'm messing up the dates now heather what's the date where katie perry tweets out pepe uh was it 2016 no 2000 I'll have to take a look. Let me let me double check. I think it was 2016. Maybe, yeah. Anyway, so the point is, like, Pepe Thanks becomes... The- I, I googled it. It's July 11th, 2016. Thank you very much. So by that point, where Katy Perry uh, tweets out Pepe, we have this moment where Pepe is the most beloved internet meme. He is used all over the place, and you get variations on him. So you get Pepe to look like a game show character, or you get Pepe with a red overlay over the green frog face, and he's angry Pepe. And so he's used to express a lot of different cultural feelings or, or uh, opinions about the world. 
by the time we get to 2015, there's a group of people who are angry that Pepe has moved from a beloved, like, enclaved image to something that everybody, including Katy Perry, at some point later, are using. And so what happens is there's this attempt to make Pepe less likable. And the easy way to do that is to use Nazi imagery to, quote unquote, reclaim Pepe for these digital enclaves that see him as their champion. The specific articulation of Trump to Pepe comes when the game show figure of Pepe is used to show Trump so that those two figures become mashed together. And then Pepe Trump is put in front of a border wall to show Trump's sort of anti-immigrant policies. And that moment becomes then this positional point where Pepe can then take off into the digital stratosphere and is used in all sorts of ways. So by the time that we get to 2016, Donald Trump himself tweets out an image of a cartoon-like Pepe the Frog in front of a presidential podium that looks just like Donald Trump. And in that moment, a couple of different things are happening. First, Donald Trump has treated, tweeted out a Pepe meme. And what that means to the, the neo-Nazis who are supporting him at this moment is that they've done a good job, right? And it encourages them to continue their work. It also allows Trump to develop a whole host of fans who will then continue to create memes to promote his election by using neo-Nazi symbolism and by encouraging those white supremacist voters to see him as the embodiment or as the partial embodiment of Pepe. What happens in the book is we want to talk about not just how Pepe fuels Trump's re-election, because there's lots of popular journalism pieces that talk about that, Instead, we want to point to what happens rhetorically when Trump becomes sutured to Pepe and Pepe becomes a marker of this group called the alt-right or what other folks might call American neo-Nazis is that they then have this image to represent who they are. They're not just trolls who live in the dark corners of the internet. Instead, they have something that can identify them and that allows them a stronger public presence. And additionally, what happens is then people like Hillary Clinton or other presidential folks who are campaigning are forced to respond to the Pepe memes or to the way that Trump is winking to the alt-right. And it suggests that the tone of the election and every topic that the public is attending to is very much contained or spurred by the way that either the Trump campaign used memes because remember, um, Trump's digital campaign manager was skimming content from places like 4chan, which is an image board, or Reddit, which is a forum, to create memes that might track for the general public. So what we argue in the book is that these memes create the possibilities of what we're going to talk about, and then shape how journalists respond to how they should cover the election. And so what these memes are doing is really shifting what we talk about and how we talk about them.
Awesome. Heather, you want to add to that? Uh, nope. I think that that's a <laughs> well done. Well done. Um, something that um, I think is interesting is that when we contacted the um, creator of Pepe the Frog to, um, you know, obtain permission to reprint earlier versions of Pepe in the book, we had to be thoughtful about what we included because um, including certain memes could amplify them in ways that we were really mindful about. We meditated a lot on that, but um, when we contacted the creator, he was, he was sort of reticent. Um, we, we said, you know, Hey, we're academics. We're writing about the rhetoric of the alt-right. We think Pepe is important. And I can't remember the exact line, but he was concerned that we were going to put um, an image of his beloved character in like Nazi propaganda on the front of the book, he was concerned that we were going to take that version of Pepe and use it. And, um, you know, he had gone through a series of processes where he tried to distance himself from those mimetic iterations of his beloved character who was supposed to just be sort of like, I don't know, a gross stoner dude that hangs out in his basement and plays video games or whatever. Um, and, and so we had to be mindful about what images to include. He had attempted to um, like kill off Pepe. Like he had a funeral for Pepe. Pepe was um, zombified and resurrected by the alt-right in even more intense forms. So Pepe is just a really interesting um, moment in time and a mimetic vehicle for transporting a lot of content, ideas, politics, ideology. And I think there's a battle, which I think Leslie alluded to very well over what Pepe means. This is a good point because I always like to bring this conversation back to like fundamentals of rhetoric because we're so seeped in a rhetorical perspective that we actually forget that a lot of people are not. And so, I mean, at least I do. You, you might not. And so sometimes when people are listening to this show, I'll get emails that are like, well, so-and-so didn't mean to do that. Or you're making a lot of something when this person's, that wasn't clear, clearly, this wasn't this person's intention. So with the Pepe meme, it's like, oh, well, this can't be Nazi stuff because that's not what the person meant. And so one of the things I love about this book and that I love about being a rhetorician generally is that, you know, we really study effects and yes, intent matters in the sense that like, it's one piece of information that helps us understand effects. But at the end of the day, there's no way you can discount all of the work, all of the rhetorical work that these memes are doing to generate Nazi sympathies through Trump voters in America by just looking at this one guy saying, oh, well, I didn't mean it. So I just wanted to highlight that because that that distance between intent and effect that's so important to the rhetorical tradition, a lot of people actually push back very hard on that because they may be very well educated, but they're educated in different ways of thinking. And so sometimes these interviews about these books are very surprising to people because we don't tend to ascribe to a intention matters kind of thinking. That's a that's a fine transition into the Lowell's chapter. But if I could just say um, the ethics of memes or the politics of memes, um, they're fluid, right? They're contested. They are a form of public discourse within which we have debates over what is appropriate and the intent question matters, but so does the effect. And so it's not like we're holding the creator of Pepe personally responsible for its uptake. However, we are saying that there is an uptake that's worth considering 
right? And it's not, it's not so much a one-to-one correlation. This person created this character and it was taken up. It has to do with the ecosystems in which Pepe was operating within sort of some of the, um, what we might call like the residues or meanings that Pepe had um, gathered over time. And the fact that Pepe was a cherished character for a lot of people gave some persuasive value to the meme as a vehicle for transmitting information. And in the Lowell's chapter, we speak a lot about the question of intent because Lowell's are sort of difficult to contend with because they provide so much rhetorical intensity. They do so much with so little. And to back up, Lulz, which I've now, um, you know, some people argue that we're in a post Lulz world and that the idea of even studying Lulz is so anti Lulz. You can think of the, the, um, the language LOL, right? Laugh out loud. That has been um, crafted over time into different forms, including Lulz, using various characters, etc. But the idea um, and you know, there are really great uh, essays by Milner and Phillips and Coleman on this question. So if you're interested in Lowell's as a theory or as a sort of affective residue, you might look at um, those authors. They talk about um, the pursuit of Lowell's, which we say is a neologism wedded to irony in the work of, sub- of subversion. And so there's always irony at play. There's always uh, subversiveness at play. And we start by talking about the ways in which lulls can be used to um, complicate memes, to sort of lay a, a trail of breadcrumbs, breadcrumbs for journalists who are trying to figure out what lulls means, but the breadcrumbs lead to a trap, right? The idea that... Um, I don't know, milk is racist, which was a, a, a meme for a period of time. Um, but we also talk about the ways in which people get hooked to very real politics through perhaps, I don't, I don't want to call them non-real, but like humorous or nonsensical mimetic formats. And so we, we talk about people who say, I got into the alt-right movement for the memes because they were funny, um, but I stayed for the politics. Hannah, let me pause there and see if you have anything to add. So one of the ways that it's easy to conceptualize lulls, and I I think it's really important I explain this to my students, is lulls is like you're trying to have fun, but you're doing it at the expense of others. So Whitney Phillips and Gabriella Coleman connect this to trolling, but it evolves over time. So like the nature of, of amusement and entertainment shifts to different types of affects. So it could be trolling a journalist so that they think one thing is true that's really not true. Or it could be encouraging people to spread memes and you don't care if they believe them or not. You simply want to offend other people. So thinking about lulls in that way, I think is is really helpful, even though what lulls is, because it's a feeling or an affect, changes over time. Yeah, and just for the for clarification for the listeners, because lulls was new to me too. The word the word is spelled L U L Z lulls, and it, it's sort of it's sort of like a like a remix of lulls L O L Z, which 
um, actually is in the book and in the sort of like what I'd call like the, the background of memes, you talk about lolcats, L-O-L-C-A-T-S, which were these hilarious cat memes um, that were just like cats speaking how you would think a cat would speak if they spoke English as Americans, but like still were had like cat brains. And so like I can has cheeseburger is the one like they, they would just be these cats carrying around this these cheeseburgers and then it would just say like I can has cheeseburger and it was it was funny in in a very earnest way right because this was just like harmless stupidity imagining what a world was like where cats and I don't know if that's still true but like for a while cats were like the number two most popular content on the internet after pornography that can't still be true because of the rise of of memes memes have to be number one but in terms of content cats like are very popular so this became a really well circulated meme and to me lols l-u-l-z is a remixing of lols because you're still in it for the lol meaning the humor but the humor has like this kind of dark um like seriousness in terms of the fact that it's it's not only just funny and the quote that you write on page 104 that i really liked um is as follows it is entertaining for those pursuing lulls to watch as, quote, normies, those are like the earnest people who actually believe that people should be responsible for what they say, are rattled or emboldened by their racist actions, even as users insist that these images do not reveal sincere beliefs. So I just wanted to backtrack and um, spell that word out because I think it would be hard for someone listening to this to make that connection. So anyway, back, back to you two. I just wanted to pause there for a second. Yeah, and we've spoken a little bit about the way that memes change over time, right? LOL, LOL, or LOLs, or whatever it is now, um, which we argue is sort of still shifting and still changing, is an example of that. The effect um, has some uh, constancy over time, right? It's about humor, it's about enjoyment, but the type of humor and the type of enjoyment sort of changes. It does have a different tone. It has a different um, effect and maybe even affect, right? That's what we argue. But what's important about humor is that it can provide rhetorical cover. There's a moment where people can say, you know, I did it to, to be funny, right? I thought it would be funny to get people who don't know better to believe in this one thing that shows how, you know, very offline or not online that they are, shows how normy that they are, that they would fall for this trick. But at the same time, as rhetoricians, we know that intent doesn't always equal effect and frequently the opposite is true. And so sharing Nazi propaganda for fun still has a rhetorical effect. And we wanted to find ways to be clear about that, that even if you got in it, to, to joke about the silliness or the, um, I don't know, the weirdness or what's the word for when something is so um, out of the pot, out of possible belief. Absurdity. Like the absurdity of a meme. Thank you. Even if you believe that a meme is absurd and no one will believe it, like take it earnestly, that is not a guarantee. And in fact, it might be the opposite. And so we do a lot of work with circulation theory and um, digital media ecosystems to describe how these rhetorical forms can actually dig in um, and hold on in certain places. Yeah. At some point, I think you use the phrase make sticky, like memes make ideas sticky. Yeah. And I think that's a term that we borrow from um, other folks who talk about the 
Yeah, I can't, I can't remember if there was a footnote there. It's just it stuck out in my mind because I was like, that's a good way to describe it. Because as you're circulating these memes, you may say you have no connection to them, like in terms of your belief system, but like they stick, right? So there's no way you're not going to have, even if you're literally the most ironic distance person ever, there's no way you're not going to have some of that. I'm, I'm like, I'm like moving my hands right now. I'm thinking about this tactically, but residue, right, on you from the fact that you handled that meme in some kind of way. Or that you find that funny in some way. Right, right, or right, or that you even recognize that this was something to be like made to mock, and and I see this with my students a lot that they like. So we think about like this concept of parisia, right? The truth speaking, the the one who like needs to speak the truth. So much of this is justified by them thinking that transgressing boundaries is somehow valuable in and of itself as a transgression, and they don't think about the fact that like actually we have boundaries in some places for good reasons, and transgressing them just for the sake of transgressing them. Um, is doing far more harm than like you somehow unsettling uh, an accepted truth for no reason other than it just is something that you felt like doing. And and we talk a little bit about that when we talk about um, earlier iterations of this mimetic effect uh, and how transgression has been used in the past to unsettle important um, dynamics or uh, to challenge oppressive structures, but how memetics can um, do that unsettling very effectively. And the politics is not guaranteed, right? The outcome of the politics is not guaranteed. Leslie, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit more about that to tournament, um, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, like, so where we're drawing our original work from on this concept is the situationists who talked about this concept called determinement. And determinement is supposed to interrupt the spectacle of what at the time they thought was really oppressive regimes. And they were really concerned with like de Gaulle in France, and they were very concerned with the rise of like ubiquitous advertising and ubiquitous consumer capitalism. And so they would create these posters that would juxtapose really resonant imagery with their own slogans or ideas. And if you looked at them now, they seem like so simplistic compared to the various levels of signification and memes. But what's happening in these moments, this sort of juxtaposition that you see in memes is very much an attempt to distance whoever created the meme or even shared the meme from the content of it or from the message that it says because it's fun, as, as Lee, you've already said, like to transgress in some way. But what you're seeing in a lot of like these background conversations about memes, and it's fascinating to me, Whitney Phillips writes in her book on trolling culture, that when people who make memes are discussing them, they talk about, quote, knowing how to rhetoric. And so what that means is they're talking about invention. They're talking about audience adaptation. They're doing all of the things that we teach in rhetorical studies, but they're doing it for far less, uh, you know, noble ambitions. They're doing it to either elect someone who, uh, is very problematic in a number of ways, or they're doing it to forward white supremacy specifically. So what happens in this concept of determinant is it's mainly used as cover, right? To say, oh, I want to say something completely noxious, but it's not who I am in real life. And so that distance between intention and effect is really important because behind the scenes, these users will have ample conversations about how 
they are sending out these neo-Nazi memes, but in their quote, real life, they're moderate. And so because so many of Americans mistake digital public talk for public talk writ large, or because so many journalists follow digital public talk, like puppies to sort of explain and journalists are doing their best to report all that's newsworthy, right? Like they're doing their best job. But at the same time, because of the way these are tactically engineered, we're constantly at a point where the most noxious public discourse is out there. And yet no one wants to claim responsibility for it as something that's really bad for us as a public, as a people. And they spill offline, right? The idea that these digital forms of rhetoric only exist in the digital sphere as if that's separate from like the tangible material world in which we live um, is something that scholars have pretty much put to bed. And so we talk about in the book how this strategy, um, this subversive strategy attempts to incite transgressive politics, revolutionary politics that is used to uh, provide cover or to provide clarity or to provide context for on the ground movements like the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville. And so um, we tracked... Or the, the guy who sent bombs or was the shooter of the, the, the synagogue in Pittsburgh, he had memes pasted to the side of his van. Right. And we, uh, I think we've written about that in another, um, another format, but uh, so what's important I think to note here is that Lowell's theoretically is a rhetorical, um, I don't know. It seems like both a process and an effect, right? It's a, it's a constantly moving circulating, um, powerhouse and it spills out into what we might what traditional rhetoricians might consider to be their home bases, right? Like, so social movements, um, uh, public texts, the president picks up some of these ideas and um, tweets them out, right? Which has become an interesting form of presidential address. So that is one way that we think that memes are not only important in and of themselves, but they have um, an influence a through line to more traditional rhetorical texts as we, as we might study. There's no world in which anyone gets very far into this book and doesn't totally buy into the claim that these are a form of public discourse that needs sustained attention. Well, thank you. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> well, also frankly, like once the president tweets it, I don't care what you think about the president, like, I'm I'm done. It like it's part it's part of the deal at that point. Whether you want it to be or not is I mean I, again like you, like not not studying this stuff is not a form of invalidating it. Which is kind of what you said earlier. There's always this weird tension between giving something attention that you don't want to give it attention and also ignoring it, hoping it's going to go away. And I understand that in some ways studying things is seen as validating them, but that's they're being validated anyway so you're not you're not winning any battles and and i think one thing too since we're almost at like 42 minutes i would love to hear more about cuz i hadn't i hadn't known this before we got in there about why the memes don't work on the left and i don't know if before we do that you want to talk more about how memes do work on the alt right if there's another campaign you want to look at or another phenomenon but i think it's a really important question to ask why we're not seeing like a counter meme movement on the left so there's a couple of go ahead leslie 
<laughs> there's a couple of different issues at stake, and then I'll let Heather continue this answer because we have lots of answers to this question. Um, the reason that the alt right um, or even conservatives tend to have better meme skills, at least as it relates to politics, is because they have a lot more ground. They're willing to say uh, a lot more uh, ideas that might be seen by the left as offensive. They don't necessarily care about using language that the people that they are targeting within their memes would hold as reprehensible in some way. And so they're willing to do quite a lot in memes. And in fact, doing me- making memes that are offensive or that are trolling in some way is beneficial to their cause. Because what it forces the left to do, and we talk about this in the book, is to always be on the defense, right? And there's no way to win if you're constantly on the defense, or there's no way to forward even the topics of public discourse that you want to address if you're constantly having to respond to these memes or other forms of trolling that the right engages in. The left does have ground, and Heather and I have been doing some consulting work to sort of like show, here's your ground, but it's definitely not using the same fear appeals or targeting of specific groups because that wouldn't gather people together and rally them to a leftist cause in the same way that the right can more easily use fear appeals, at least um, not necessarily the Republican Party, though they do that as well, but really these like ad hoc groups like the alt-right or um, followers of Ben Shapiro, those kinds of folks are more willing to engage in that kind of discourse. Heather, do you want to add some things there? Yeah, so I think that that's great. Um, we get this question quite frequently uh, when we talk about the book, and thoroughly apologize for being. No, you're a not cliche. a cliche because the <laughs> the book sets it up. Um, we get the question in a bunch of different forms. What about the far left? Like, why can't the left meme? And one thing that I I like to say is that the left can't meme is a meme in and of itself. Um, and sort of more abstractly, it, it is a, an indication of the uh, characteristics that Leslie was talking about. But it also has become like a meme <laughs> online that circulates in various visual formats. And we talk about this book that's available on Amazon that um, I think it's called Yes, We Can Meme. And it attempts to take some of the most successful, iconic or mimetic imagery from the left and um, sort of stick it to the alt-right. But when you buy the book, if you buy the book, it's just a trolling book for um, the far left, which is humorless and needs to understand the internet better. And so our argument isn't necessarily that memes are inherently um, uh, an extremely conservative or even like fascist um, medium that the left indeed can meme. And again, part of that consulting work that we're doing and uh, some other things that we've been noticing is that the left or at least certain parts of it are, are deft at meaning. Um, and so I have uh, a, a colleague who's working on a set of colleagues that are working on gritty memes. Um, and that is a particular leftist politics that escapes the sort of, um, 
characterization of the centrist left as intolerant snowflakes who are unwilling to get a joke, right? And so um, when Leslie is talking about the right having more ground, that's certainly true because there are certain things that the left will not tolerate, uh, or at least theoretically, right? according to a pure ideological standpoint, they won't accept racism, sexism, heterosexism, uh, transphobia. But what the right has been, or more particularly the far right, has been very good at is, is saying, because of that, you are intolerant. So your unwillingness to tolerate my alternative views, quote unquote alternative, um, means that you're intolerant, you're a snowflake, you can't handle it. Um, and we're seeing uh, additional work on people on the left, and some people might call it the far left. Uh, we've had debates over the term left versus centrist versus liberal. Um, so there are, there are people on the left doing some exceptional mimetic work. And I think, I feel like there's a whole, there's a whole book in that. There's probably four books in that. Mm-hmm. Well, and you make two points in the book that I just want to point out for the sake of just kind of um, keep, like you already made so- several arguments about this that, that I think are fascinating. One is this idea that um, this is page uh, 73 the idea that the left assumes that this group of neo-Nazis can be curbed through rebuke, right? That that the, 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 the left has sort of taken this rational, I'm going to explain why your actions are wrong kind of move. Uh, and that doesn't work because you're presuming from the start that the people who are, right, you're presuming a non-lull, you're, you have a non-lulls reaction to a lulls motivated behavior. And the second thing you talk about is actually there were raids on some of these 4chan, some of these leftist 4chan and Reddit sites where they were producing these memes. They actually, the, the far right went in and sort of like actively suppressed that form of expression. So it's not just that the left can't meme, but also that, you know, the right is kind of just more coordinated in their efforts to suppress that, that what we might call like left lulzing, if that's even a thing, but I'm not sure that would be a really interesting book. But you did point those out in the book. So read again, it, for people at home who want to read the book. There is a lot in here um, about those two those two pieces of the puzzle. Yeah, absolutely. And part of our work that I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast about providing an infrastructure or scaffolding to understand memes broadly means that we have to understand the ecosystems in which they circulate. And that's another facet of the puzzle, that the far right is just ahead in terms of having um, already existing circuits for memes to travel and to be amplified. Um, And we talk about what that ecosystem looks like and how it has expressions in traditional public formats, including the president's Twitter, um, a little bit more in the book. Yeah, I did this exercise with my students where I had them sort of listed out all of the news sources or all of the digital sites that they regularly go to. And then I had them figure out, okay, well, if Breitbart launches this story about a meme, where is it likely to go next? And what is the narrative of that meme likely to be, right? And so they talked about like all of these right-anchored sources. So Breitbart, Fox News, uh, all of these different areas that people go to for content. It's very easy for them to spin one holistic narrative. Whereas if you go on the quote unquote other side, right? Let's like Vox, the New York Times, right? All of these different sources that they named. What was happening was it was less a holistic narrative and more a discussion or a contestation of what these things mean and do. 
And so in terms of that ecosystem that Heather is talking about, that's really important because we don't have a narrative on the left of here's what this thing is, here's how we need to address this as strong as, and certainly with far less audience just in the numbers than what's happening in these far right ecosystems. And there is a book by Bankler and colleagues that talks about in 2016, what happened is that that far right ecosystem shifted news coverage overall and created a holistic set of narratives for not just the far right, but for all conservatives to latch onto as the central issue of the election. Yeah. Like I said, we never get to more than tip of the iceberg in these interviews, um, which is great because it did suggest how rich the book is. But we are at um, like 50 minutes. And so I wanted to see if either of you wanted to touch on anything that we haven't been able to touch on. I usually like to keep these about an hour so, but I don't want to cut off anything that you think is still sort of un- undeveloped in the book. One possible ending point is uh, to answer the so what question or the what what's next question. Um, and we struggled yeah, let's do it. Uh, collectively on this question as we were writing the um, concluding chapters. And, you know, we're both teachers of rhetoric. We're both scholars of rhetoric. So perhaps it's not surprising that we say that um, we need to have digital literacy campaigns um, where students um, and people who exist online in any capacity learn some of the fundamentals of rhetoric, of persuasion, but also um, media affects circulation um, ecosystems so that when memes come across their timeline or uh, a feed, that they can approach it with a um, thoughtful um, presence. They can meditate on it. They can recognize its power, even though it seems silly and um or are stupid. And so we find corollaries in um, propaganda uh, literacy campaigns. So there's, there's historical precedent for um, thinking about um, training people to unpack memes. Uh, and that's one place that we locate possibility for responding to um, a medic practice that we think is fundamentally bad for the Republic and for democracy. Lovely. I feel very inspired. And uh, (laughs) just to give people some hope, having just taught this memes class, all of my students at the end were required to create memes that promote social goods. Um, And they did a marvelous job of like encouraging people to have a more robust attention to politics, especially since young people report that they hate politics. They hate reading about politics. Mm -hmm. They did a marvelous job and it was really inspiring to me because I had spent, you know, three quarters of the semester depressing them apparently about the future of democracy. And they were so Mm -hmm. excited at the end to think about, right? Like, it's not just that the alt-right did this horrible thing with memes and may have helped white supremacy become stronger, but that it's also an amazing case study to learn that like, these haphazard group of diffuse actors did that, but so can anyone else. Right. And right. That's, that's the good thing about memes, that's right? That's the key point is that there's still a lot of ground game and rhetorical invention at stake that can be really powerful. 
Yeah, I actually taught um, a, st- a rhetoric of stand-up comedy class this semester for the first time ever, which is something I've wanted to do for a long time. And we talked a lot in that class about how um, how the, the desire – I wish I'd known about lulls at the time. I mean, I wish I'd read the book earlier because I would have brought that in. But we looked at that new Dave Chappelle stand-up and how there's so much transgression happening that is amazing. And then there's so much transgression happening that is horrifying. And so if you can transgress for the greater good, then why not do that? And and looking at like how do you funnel like the need the I think I think what I would argue is a human need to transgress and push boundaries. How do you funnel that into like positive things that actually promote the social good? And so we did sort of similar projects in terms of them writing stand up comedy that took aim at a problematic sort of social norm through trans right transgression. And I I really think it was incredibly impactful. Of course, I mean, they'll probably forget it in the six weeks, but at least for right now, as we're ending the semester, I feel very similarly that I think there's a lot of hope for for teaching digital literacy and also teaching like how to rhetoric. I mean, I love that phrase from the book. It's like, it was probably my favorite part of the book is learning that phrase. Would you, who'd you say that came from again, that came from Cummings? Whitney Phillips. Yeah, it's like teaching people not only how to rhetoric, but that like how to rhetoric is really fun and cool and transgressive. It's just if you've only got people with negative messages teaching that stuff, then people only learn how to do it for negative purposes. Exactly. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm a cautious optimist. I I have seen people do complex rhetorical work, complex policy discussions about the future of society in meme format. So it's not that memes are an impossible uh, vehicle for having the type of sustaining conversations that would support a democracy. It's just that right now they they aren't necessarily. Yeah. Well, this has been an awesome interview. So much to think about. Such a great book. And so again, this is Make America Meme Again uh, by Peter Lang Press. And for those of you, I just like always like to tell people um, – that the presses do a lot of work with the New Books Network. They are very important to the academics to help us get our work out there. And so supporting the presses that support us is very important. Even if you can't pick up a personal copy of Make America Meme Again, you might consider putting in a request at your uh, local library. That could be a public library or a college library that they purchase the book so that it can be available for everyone to share and learn these ideas. And with that in mind, do either of you have um, a book you're reading right now or that you've heard about that you think might be a good invitation for the next interview of New Books Network? How is the Cummings book? Or she's, I keep calling her Whitney Cummings. Is Whitney, what's her last name again? Whitney Phillips. I'm going to recommend her white paper from Data and Society. Great. Uh, it's digitally available. It's amazing. It's a full discussion of how journalists should talk about and respond to the alt-right. And it is a wonderful primer for a lot of us to read about like, okay, how should we respond to these things as a public? How should we think about them and place them in a certain context? That's cool. And we've never done a white paper before. So that'll be that'll be neat. Speaking of transgressing boundaries. Well, thank you so much again for being here. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. And once again, cannot recommend highly enough. Make America meme again. Thanks, everyone for listening. Have a lovely wintry snowy day if you're up in the north. And if you're in the south, I hate you right now. <laughs> <laughs>